0: Well, this morning we're going to be back at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Next week we're going to be looking at uh, Luke chapter 1 and actually have a message on the Christmas story. But today we're back at um, this greatest of all texts in the Bible that deals with what it means to be an excellent minister of Jesus Christ. We have looked at the excellent minister's diet and his discipline. Um, We have looked at his labor and uh, we have looked at his call. And now we are looking at the good minister's or excellent servant's example. Dr. Eric, or not Eric, but Alexander McLaren, not to be confused with Dr. Eric Alexander Alexander McLaren was probably one of the greatest exposers of all time. And when he was preaching, there was a gentleman in his congregation who was a real a great intellect. And Dr. McLaren thought, you know, if that guy could just come to the Lord, it would be great. I mean, he's got such a mind. And so he began to pray for the man and he decided that he would preach a whole series of sermons dealing with the intellectual difficulties that people had with Christianity. Well, to his delight, shortly after that time, the man came up to him and said he had been become convinced that Christianity was true, that he had become a Christian, and he wanted to join the church. So overjoyed, the doctor said, And which of my sermons was it that removed your doubts? Your sermons? Asked the man. It wasn't any of your sermons. The one thing that set me thinking was the poor woman who came out of your church beside me and stumbled on the steps. When I put out my hand to help her, she smiled and said, Thank you, and then added, Do you love Jesus, my blessed Savior? He means everything to me. I did not then, but I thought about it, and I have found what I... That I was on the wrong road. He says, I still have many intellectual difficulties, but now he means everything to me too. That is a great story. It's a great story because it tells you of the power of example. It was not one of the greatest expositors who ever lived in his sermons, which brought this great intellect To Christ, it was a stumbling woman who loved Jesus and her example one morning as she was leaving the church. How important is it to be an example? Think about it. People are watching you. They watch you every day. People in your family watch you, maybe people At work watch you, your neighbors watch you, people at the grocery store watch you. What does your life tell other people about Jesus? Webster defines example as one that serves as a pattern to be imitated or not to be imitated. God is watching, the angels are watching, believers are watching, unbelievers are watching. And what do they see when they look at your life? What is your example? What pattern are you setting for others to follow or are you setting a pattern that others should not follow? And this is the whole topic of our text this morning. We have been working our way through this significant text which lays out for us the pursuits and the desires and the goals and the aspirations and the the steadfastness of an excellent minister of Jesus Christ. And we've seen all of these different areas, and today we come to the good servant's example. And so if you have your Bible, please look at 1 Timothy chapter 4, and we're going to read verses 6 to 16, and then this morning we're going to focus on verse 12. Paul says this, and pointing out these things to the brethren, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, constantly nourished on the words of the faith and sound doctrine which you have been following. And then he says, But have nothing to do with worldly fables fit only for women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. For bodily discipline is only of little profit, but godliness is profitable for all things since it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. It is a trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance, for it is this that we labor and strive because we have fixed our hope on a living God who is the Savior of all men, especially of believers. Prescribe and teach these things. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, Faith and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. Do not neglect the spiritual gift within you, which was bestowed on you through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Take pains with these things, be absorbed in them, so that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourselves and those who hear you. Look again at verse 12. Notice what he says. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. The text before us contains two commands, one negative and the other positive. And these two commands teach us two important characteristics of the good minister or excellent minister of Jesus Christ. First, the negative command teaches us that when you preach God's word, you must never let anyone disregard your message and push it aside because of your age. And secondly, the positive command is when you teach or preach the word of God, you must be an example of what you teach and preach. And that is what this verse teaches us. So let's look at the first point. When you teach and preach the word of God, you should let no one disregard its message. Paul says, let no one look down on your youthfulness. That word Look down upon means to think little of, or think small of, or to put down, or to set aside, or to disregard. It means to to treat someone as if they have nothing to say, to disqualify their message because of, he says, your youth. New Testament scholar Kenneth, Kenneth Wiest has pointed out that The Greek here shows that Timothy was already being despised. He was already being looked down upon. That is why Paul wrote this. There were some older gentlemen, obviously, who were pushing aside his message. They did not want to hear sound doctrine. They did not want to hear the truth. They did not want to hear the gospel. Not because it wasn't true. It was because Timothy was saying it. And so... Paul says, Timothy, listen, boy, don't let anyone disregard you. Let no one despise you. Do not let them disqualify the message that you are preaching. In the preceding verse, we noted that, Timothy and all excellent ministers are to be always commanding and teaching the word of God. And so Paul says, Timothy, don't let them disregard the message. Now, what's interesting is Timothy was not 16. He was not in his mid 20s, late 20s, early 30s. Most likely, from what we can tell, he was in his late 30s. But in some of those cultures, if you were not 40, you were just a sapling. You were a sprout. I mean, what do you know? You're only 36 or 38 or 39. And then all of a sudden, 40 instantly mature. (laughs) The real problem, though, is not that they disregarded Timothy. That's fine. If they're going to disregard Timothy, that's not a big deal. If they disregard us, that's not a big deal either. But it is a big deal if they disregard the Word of God. That is a huge deal. And that is why Paul tells Timothy, let no one disregard you. And if you are young, you might have experienced this before. You know, older people look at you and, uh, you know, listen. You know, my mom would always remind me that she used to change my diapers. (laughs) And I try and tell her something. To me, she, I am the baby of the family. I'll always be the baby of the family. And that's just the way it is. Because my age does not allow me to be equal to my mother because she's older. And so there is some truth there that when you are old, if you've been walking with the Lord, if you've been applying God's word, if you've been following the truth, yes, you should be wiser, you should be more godly, you should have more to say. But it is not always true that just because you're old, you have more to say. And it's not always true just because you're young, you don't have anything to say. If you communicate the truth, it is the truth no matter what age the vessel is that the truth goes through. You can pour water out of an antique picture. You can put uh, uh, pour water out of a styrofoam cup. It's still water. The water does not change because of the vessel. And neither does the word of God change because of the mouth that speaks it. As long as it's being spoken, it's still the word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but God's word will not pass away. God's word abides forever. And so, sometimes when you are in the ministry, you have people despise you in one degree or another. I, I just countless times, and um, because you know, I have the gift of the Hughes baby face. And you wonder why I grow this is so I don't look like I'm 16 and people run out the door laughing when they come in. And and people, I've had this happen so many times that I'd be out there and they they come up to me and they say, "Oh, when I saw you come up there and they're they're visiting and they say, I thought, oh, they must have the new guy. This must be the youth pastor. You know, this, this guy must be the young sapling." And they're thinking to themselves, "Oh no, he's gonna experiment on us today." And they're thinking, oh, I'll have to come back again to hear the real guy. <laughs> and in their minds, my age or apparent lack of has instantly put me on a lower shelf. I have less to say. I haven't even, they don't even know me. Just because I look young, instantly. Hmm, his credibility is not as good as somebody older and rounder and grayer or whatever. At times in my ministry, I've had people try to disregard the message that I have taught because of my age. I remember one time three gentlemen confronting me, saying, listen, you can't just say that a pastor can't have disobedient kids. He says, you're being legalistic. Oh, really? Hmm. I said, well, you know, the Bible says that you know, they got to have children who are faithful, not accused of rebellion or dissipation. Then, then here, here it comes. Listen, when you get older, and you have teenagers, then you'll be a little bit wiser, and you won't make such dogmatic statements. So then, I had to pull out the sword. And I unsheathed it and said... Here, God says they must have children who are faithful, not accused of rebellion or dissipation. It is must be or they cannot be a leader. And then they got mad and stomped off. Never let anyone disregard the message because of your age. You stand up, you tell the truth. It doesn't matter in front of you or how old they are. If you are a leader... You must let no one disregard your message because of the age. The Word of God does not change when we get older. The Word of God does not get, I don't know, different because you grow old. The truth is the same. Now, you can teach error and then truth, but if you're teaching the truth, it's truth whether you're young or you're old. Another thing is that when you get old, it doesn't give you permission to to sin against the truth. You have to obey the truth whether you're young or old. It's the standard for everybody. God's word does not receive its authority from the messenger, but from God himself. And that is why Timothy and any other minister was not to let anyone disregard them. You know, we have a saying we say sometimes when, you know, there's a, a young person and they say something that's, you know, profound or true. We say, oh, out of the mouth of babes, you know, it's like oh, out of the mouth. You know where that comes from? Psalm 8 listen to it from the mouth of infants and nursing babes. You have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. David, speaking of God, says God is able to take infants and babies and establish strength through them. Why? Because he is God and nothing is impossible for him. He is God. God is able to establish great feats through those who you would think would be unable to accomplish them. I love what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. I love that. God does not need a famous person so-and-so in the who's list of whoever to become a Christian. He does not use many wise people many noble people, many distinguished people. I mean, look at us. I mean, you know, there's not very many people who, you know, have the cameras out there waiting to watch them come out of the church. No, we're just average people, sometimes below average. And God likes that. Do you know why? He likes it because His strength is perfected in weakness. He likes... The underdog. He likes the despised and he likes to take that person and make them into a great instrument of his glory. I, I like Jonah. What a loser. I mean, you look at that guy. He just did everything exactly opposite of what God said. Go preach to Nineveh. No, no. He runs away, he hides in the ship, you know, finally the sea's are about ready to swallow him up. He comes up, okay, I did it. They pitch him over, the whale eats him, and you're thinking, okay, well that's through with Jonah. Then when he finally, you know, gets spit up, then he has to take this huge walk, which was a long time just to get to Nineveh. And he's grumpy and he's pouting because he knows that God might have mercy on the Ninevites. But he goes into the city and he cries out, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown and walks through. Now, this is a group of people who have never heard the Bible. No exposure to the word of God. He is in enemy territory. The Ninevites hated the Israelites. He walks through the city, he preaches, gives them one message, and the entire city repents. The greatest revival ever recorded in history, Jonah. One guy, reluctant, grumpy, ungodly. And God uses him in a huge way. But merely being right is not enough. You also must live the truth if you're really going to have an impact on people's lives. You can't just say the truth and live the lie. You cannot be a lying truth speaker. You must live what you preach and teach. Thomas Watson, in his work, Harmless as Doves, said, quote, In the law, the lips of the leper were to be covered. That minister who is by an office an angel, but in a life a leper ought to have his lips covered. He deserves silencing. A good preacher, but a bad liver, is like a physician that has the plague. Though his advice... And receipts which he gives may be good, yet his plague infects the patient. So though ministers may have good words and give good receipts in the pulpit, yet the plague of their life infects their people. If you find Hophni and Phinehas among the sons of Levi's, whose unholy lifestyle makes the offering of God to be abhorred, you will save God a labor in ejecting them." Quote. And that is true. There is nothing worse than someone who says one thing and does another. as a matter of fact, in counseling, I have discovered that a lot of people have their biggest hang ups about becoming Christians are, I had parents who made me go to church, and they did opposite of what they said, and then it discredits the gospel message, and that is why Paul said in second corinthians six three that he worked hard at giving no offense giving no offense in anything so that the ministry would not be discredited in 1 Corinthians 12 or 112 he said for our proud confidence is this the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity not in fleshly wisdom but in the grace of god we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially toward you What was their proud confidence that they lived the truth in front of them? So they knew that whatever they said could not be discredited by their life. And that's why they just spoke it with confidence, because being right is not all that matters. The truth does not change if your life contradicts it, but you become an improper vessel of the truth. It's hard to convince somebody they shouldn't lie when you lie, that they shouldn't steal when you steal. If your life is contradicting what the truth you are teaching others, then it will stop their ears and they will not be able to tolerate the truth that you speak. And this leads us to the importance of being an example, which is the second point. When you teach or preach the gospel, you must be an example of what you teach and preach. And this is just so obvious, but Paul goes into it in great detail. Now, there's something I want to point out here. If you look at the verse, and you have the New American Standard Version, you will see it says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but... And then he gives five things. Then he says, Show yourself an example of those who believe. Really, show yourself an example of those who believe should follow the but. It should read, and let no one look down on your youthfulness, but show yourself an example of those who believe in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. That's how the King James, the New King James, the NIV, and other translators translate it. And that is the best translation because it follows the priority of the Greek. So the two commands are put up front, and then the details of how that second command is to be lived out is listed afterwards. Now this word example here is the Greek word tupas, the word we get type from. It's an interesting word. It means to strike a blow so to as make an impression. You know if you've ever had, you know, metal shop where you had to, you know, put your name on something, you beat something, it puts an impression or or when they make uh, coins, they actually have a stamp and that stamp has the uh, the perfect image of the coin on it. And then the blank comes by and it is struck. And then when it releases, the coin bears the image of the stamp. The stamp would be the antitype, the coin The type, the tupas, the example of what was struck. And in the same way, as leaders, you are to be examples. You are to mirror to other people what it means to be a mature, godly Christian. You're walking outside and there's some mud and you step in the mud. The mud then reflects your footprint, you you'll go get a, a document, an important document, notarized. And what do they do? They have this little thing that looks like a pair of pliers with a with a little vice clampy thing in it. And you put your, your paper in there and you crush it. And it smashes the paper so that the paper then reflects the antitype. And it becomes a type of the seal that was on the image of the seal that was on the seal, the crusher thing, whatever you call it. And that's what it's all about, being a leader. You need to be a example, an image that others can follow. In Hebrews 13, 7, which is a very scary verse, it says this, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and consider the results of their conduct, imitate their faith. Now, here's all the elements in our verse and the verse before it. You have those who lead, those who spoke the word of God, their conduct, and then imitating that contact. The word, the word imitate is really the Greek word to mimic. To mimic. Now, that's pretty scary if you're a leader. I don't care how godly you are. It's scary to think other people would follow you. I mean, that's that's, you know, it's one thing to strive and to press on and to to try and be a leader, but when you begin to realize that other people are watching you and other people are following you, I mean, some of the scary things that happen to me, um, people will say, oh, I was talking with so-and-so, one of your disciples, and do you know that they have adopted your same mannerisms? Like, oh no, what else have they adopted? That's scary to think people would be following you, but that's what it means to be a leader. Paul said the excellent minister is one who can say, Brethren, join in following my example and observe those who walk in the pattern you have seen in us. That is scary. Philippians 3.17 you look, you look around and you you follow those who are following us. You watch them later in Philippians four nine. Paul says the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. That is just amazing, because Paul was you know he wasn't all that wonderful of an oratory person. I mean he wasn't a great speaker. I mean, the scriptures say his speech was contemptible and his looks weren't that good either. Some say he was short and bald with a big beaked nose. And here's this guy who can't speak good, he doesn't look good. But what happens? God uses that person in his weakness to write. The majority of the letters to the churches in the Bible. The greatest missionary who ever lived. A persecutor of the church. The violent aggressor. The chief of sinners. He uses that because Paul humbled himself. God actually humbled him on the road. Paul had no choice really. He was struck blind. But God uses people who you would think ill, this guy could never be used for Christianity. He hates, he hates Jesus. He's persecuting Jesus. He can't speak good. He doesn't look good. And so God uses him more than anybody else. We learn from verse 6 that the excellent minister is one who is following the words of the faith and sound doctrine. Didn't we learn that? And then verse 7, we also learn that the good servant of Jesus Christ disciplines himself for the purpose of godliness. People see that. In verse 10, we are told that the excellent minister is to labor and strive in disciplining himself for godliness. People see that. Then again in verse 15, the excellent minister is told to let their progress be evident to all. That is, be an example. Let everybody see you growing in godliness. And in our text, we are given five specific areas where every man who aspires to be an excellent minister must excel in. The conjunction but there in the middle of the verse is a strong conjunction. It's not just the normal kind of wimpy one that says, let no one despise your youth, but show yourself an example. It's but show yourself an example. Strong contrast. Instead of letting them despise you, you show yourself an example. And this is what it teaches us. That when when Paul says, let no one disregard you, he's not saying... Grab for power. He's not saying, act like a big shot. Assert your authority. He's not saying, snub up your nose at those older people who are attacking you. No. How the excellent minister is to let no one disregard him is by acting in a godly way just as he speaks in a godly way. To have his life match up with what he says. And so let's look at each of these. The first thing he says is, in speech. Show yourself an example in speech. Of course, what we say is very telling about our hearts, isn't it? What did Jesus say? A man speaks out of that which what? Fills the heart. So if your heart is wicked, it's going to come out your mouth. And so if you are a leader and you're lying or you have filthy talk... Or whatever it is, and it's pouring out of your mouth all the time, and people look at it, they're going to know what your heart is, and they're going to know that you aren't what you say you are, or pretend to be. And that is why it is so important that we guard our speech. You look at the life of Jesus, and one of the great things it says about him, that when he went to the cross, he was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, that was what? Silent before his shears, and there was no deceit where? In his mouth. And that's what every excellent minister should strive for. The second point, the second thing that an min- excellent minister has shown himself an example is, is in conduct. That is how he acts. The word might better be translated way of life. Show yourself an example in the way of your life. Listen to how it's, how it's used in Galatians 1.13. It's translated previous way of life. Listen to this. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. That phrase, previous way of life, is the same word translated here, conduct. It means what is... What is the characteristics of how you live? When they looked at Paul, what did they see? Well, you see a Jew, a Pharisee, a disciple of Gamaliel who hated Jesus, hated Christianity, hated the followers of Christ and did everything he could to persecute them. That was his conduct, his way of life. It's not talking about moments, um, small periods of time. It's talking about the overall picture. If you're a leader, you're just going to blow it. Every leader blows it. We all blow it. We say things we shouldn't. We do things we shouldn't. We think things we shouldn't. The scriptures say the righteous man falls seven times, but when you look at his life, what is the way? What is the conduct? What is the pattern? And that is what is to be excellent. The third thing mentioned here is love. He is to show himself an example in love. Now this word love here is uh, is not a emotionalism, it is a self-sacrificing commitment to do what is best for other people. It's the same word used in Romans 5, 8, and you probably remember that verse where it's a famous one, that God demonstrates his own love towards us, in what? And while we were yet sinners, what happened? Christ died for us. See, did Jesus feel good about going to the cross? No, I mean, his sweat was like drops of blood in the garden, wasn't it? Think he felt good when they were falsely accusing him? Do you think he felt good when when they whipped him and scourged him and put the crown of thorns upon his head? Think that felt good? Do you think he was feeling good about that? When they nailed him to the cross and slowly tortured him to death? He did not feel good about that. That felt bad. But yet he was loving all the while because there is this great confusion today that people think that love is a feeling. Now, love comes with feelings. There is no doubt we are feeling creatures. We are emotional creatures. We all have emotions. We 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 feel things. But never be deceived into thinking that love is defined by feeling because it's not. It's defined by action. You remember what Jesus said in John 15, 13? Greater love has no man than this. And what? He lays down his life. That is the greatest act of love, a doing for someone else's benefit. Listen to what Paul said. Love was in first Corinthians 13, four through eight. We know this passage. Love is patient. Love is kind. It is not jealous love does not brag it is not arrogant does not act unbecomingly does not seek its own is not provoked does not take into account a wrong suffered does not rejoice in unrighteousness but rejoices with the truth bears all things believes all things hopes all things endures all things love never fails now that is what love is no emotions in the list all actions unselfish actions done for someone else for their benefit. That's what love is. And there's so much confusion about love today. It just, you know, I have people just say, well, you know, um, I want a divorce. Why? Well, I just don't have any feelings anymore. So get them back. Get them back. Start doing these things and the feelings will come back. But don't let the feelings be the engine and love be the camboose. Love is to be the engine and the feelings, they come and go. But when you start looking about love, especially in the church today, there there are aspects of love that are just flat out neglected. There are certain things about love that people just in the church today have no concept of. And I want to give you four of them. Usually when you talk about love, you get the kindness, the compassion, the, you know, feelings part of it, empathy, sympathy, those kind of things. But even when you look in 1 Corinthians 13, 48, you see things like does not act unbecomingly, or rejoices in the truth, or does not rejoice in unrighteousness. Those kind of Phrases qualify what love is. Love never rejoices in that which is wrong. Now listen to this. Love rejoices in the truth. This means love hates error. Hates error. That's what the scriptures teach. If you are to be loving like God, you will hate error. Because if you love that which God hates... You are not loving at all, are you? Secondly, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, which means love hates sin. Just like God hates sin, so we are to hate sin. That is the loving thing to do. Third, love models itself after Christ and His love towards mankind. When you look at Jesus in the Gospels... Do you ever see him severely rebuke anybody? Yes. Do you ever see him condemn anybody? Yes. Why? He condemns false teachers. He condemns hypocrites. Why? Because it's the most loving thing to do. And what happens in the church today is people begin to think that love just always just lays down and lets just whatever. What You do whatever you want. Listen, fourth thing. Love always places God first before others. You cannot say, I love God and tolerate what God hates or do what God hates. You can't say, I am showing love towards other men but hating God in the way I live. If you aren't showing love towards God, then you aren't showing love towards men because you're being a model of hatred towards God. And this is such an important aspect that people um, miss today that people think, well, you know, I don't want to lose this person's friendship. What about God's friendship? You must make a choice between living for God or living for men. And if it ever comes where you have to choose God or men, if you ever choose men, you are not showing love no matter what you call it. This is why... Jesus said what he said in John 14:26 and this is just one sentence out of a whole section that says the same thing. Listen, J- Luke 14:26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now what was Jesus saying there? He was saying, you want to be my disciple? I'll tell you, what you must do in order to be my disciple. If something in the future comes up and your parent or your mother or your father or brother or sister or your best friend says, go this way, and I say, go this way, and you choose them over me, you are not my disciple. Because my disciples are willing to hate what I hate. That's what it means to follow me all the way. Not just be compassionate when I want to be compassionate, but to hate what I hate. And that is an, an area of love that is so neglected in the church today because people just want to say, oh, you know, love is some thinned down broth of sentimentalism. And, oh, it's okay if you sin. It's okay if you teach false doctrine. It's okay if anybody does anything. I mean, we're all just, you know, God's children let's just not just be judging anybody i mean come on that's un- unloving and intolerant and divisive to actually condemn somebody when the bible says when a person is in sin and they refuse to repent it calls us to reprove them using the adjective severely that is the loving thing to do if somebody's running towards a cliff you don't go excuse me excuse me um excuse me Please stop. Uh, excuse me. Uh, wait. Uh, could you could you please stop for a moment? Hey, there's a cliff coming! Stop! Why? Because that's the most loving thing to do. You know your your child starts running towards the hot oven and you don't go, "Hello there." You're gonna get your hand burnt. You just grab them. Is that being mean? No. It's showing love towards your child. The fourth thing we see here in the text is not only is he to be a person of godly love, it says he is to be an example in faith. Now, this is very interesting because when you study faith, you find out that faith is used a lot of different ways in the Bible. Let me just give you some of them. Sometimes when you read about faith, faith is used to describe that initial belief that we have in Christ that saves us, that we become Christians, right? You you hear the gospel, you believe in it, and are saved. That is, you had faith, and then you become a believer. So sometimes it's used of that, as that initial trust in the message of Jesus Christ and Him crucified. It's also used to describe a person's belief in Christianity. Not just in the person of Jesus and Him crucified, but everything they believe about Christianity—that is their faith in what they believe. It's like a personal thing, but it's also used in a similar way of not the person believing or that act of believing, but in the very content itself. Remember how Jude described it? He described the, the Christianity as the the faith once for all delivered to the fa- the saints. We have this faith, this this corporate body of truth which is the faith of christianity it's also used to describe trustworthiness you know we might say somebody is faithful in the way they act that is they are trustworthy you can rely upon them It is required of stewards that they be found faithful same word it's translated belief or faith or faithful and faith can also describe Godly character which comes from all the things we just mentioned. Somebody comes to the Lord, they are saved. They undergo regeneration. They begin to learn truths and they believe in them. That belief is in the corporate faith of Christianity. And that faith starts making them trustworthy and reliable and faithful. And they become people of integrity. And that's what it's talking about here. You show yourself an example in That is, in all the areas that you are to live in, you show yourself an example in all those areas. The final thing is purity. He is to show himself an example in purity. That means he is to be chaste, free from defilement, not be sinning, not have corruption in his life. He is to have this pure, chaste, you know, like a clean glass of water with no dirt clods in there. Or little hairs floating around. He is to be a clean and pure person. George Zemeck has written, All men are accountable to God for profession without practice. Yet certain ones by virtue of their office are responsible at the highest level of divine accountability for prescription without practice. And then he quotes James 3.1, which says, Teachers will incur a stricter judgment. That is scary. You know, I don't really know what that means. I haven't really done a detailed study on that verse, but it bothers me. (laughs) I know what judgment is. I also know that believers, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So I don't know how it is that they incur a stricter judgment. Maybe it's from the people. Whatever it is, judgment is not good. And teachers incur it more in a stricter way. And so we must be very careful of how we live and how we speak. We must be like Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I love those guys. Why? Because a lot of times, you know, we think of youth as these um, insignificant pupa stage adults. And in a way, they are. You know, their voices are talking like this, and they're going up and down. It's fun to talk to a junior high boy because they're, what? Uh, know, they're growing They got pimples. They haven't got to the place where they're adults and they're too big to play with Barbies. (laughs) They're just kind of in that middle stage. And so often we can look down on them because, you know, oh, well, you're just a junior hire, like you're just part human. (laughs) But think about this. You have Daniel and his three buddies Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What happened to them? They were junior hires, plucked from their country, taken across the desert, stuck in Babylon away from their parents. They were told to learn all this Babylonian garbage. They were basically brainwashed and taught in all the ways the Babylonians. And what happened? They didn't cave in. They stood Firm in the faith. And at the end of their training period, the scripture says that they were ten times better than anyone else. Ten times. Then what's interesting is later on, Nebuchadnezzar builds this image, makes everybody bow down to it, and so out of all the people, no one else got thrown into the fiery furnace. None of the other Israelites got thrown into the fiery furnace, which tells you what? They all bowed down. And these three junior hires stand up and say, Nebuchadnezzar, we are not going to bow down before your image. Even if you throw us into the fiery furnace, and even if you do, that's okay, but I want you to know our God is able to deliver us, and he does. And what happens because of the faith of those Three insignificant junior hires. All the Babylonians, including the king, worship who? The true God. Don't let anyone despise your youth, but be an example in your youth. Well, Helmus Brackel, in his work, The Christian's Reasonable Service, said this, quote, if a minister is guilty of giving offense, he will immediately hear, hear, physician, heal thyself. He will have no freedom to rebuke. His words will find no entrance to the name of God, will be blasphemed, and many will be uh, offended If he excels in virtue, however, and his life emanates much light, his word will have much effect upon the hearts of the hearers. His presence will command respect, and many, due to their sins, will be rebuked in their conscience and stirred up towards godliness when they see him. A minister must therefore be diligent to give heed to his internal condition and his external behavior." He is like a polished diamond. The smallest hair or thread on it will easily be detected. He must be aware of the fact that he is observed to a far greater degree than anyone would be inclined to think, and that men are more aware of his internal condition than he would suspect." So it is that an excellent minister must be one constantly nourished up and constantly living out. Because people will know it. If you are an elder, if you are a leader of this church, you need to ask yourself, am I an example for others to follow? Can I say what Paul said in Philippians 3.17? Brethren, join with me in following my example. We need to be there. We need to work towards that end. What would this church be like if everyone did what you did? if everyone thought what you thought, if everyone prayed like you prayed, if everybody read their Bible as much as you read your Bible, there is no doubt that churches become like their leaders. And you are setting the pace. First Peter 5.3 speaking to the elders said, Prove to be examples to the flock. Prove it. Edgar Guest wrote a poem entitled, I'd Rather See a Sermon. It reads, I'd rather see a sermon than hear one any day. I'd rather one should walk with me than merely show the way. The eye's a better pupil and more willing than the ear. Fine counsel is confusing, but example's always clear. And the best of all the preachers are men who live their creeds. For to see the good in action is what everybody needs. I can soon learn how to do it if you let me see it done. I can watch your hands in action, but your tongue too fast may run. And the lectures you deliver may be wise and true, but I'd rather get my lesson by observing what you do. For I may misunderstand you and the high advice you give, but there's no misunderstanding how you act and how you live. Scary, very scary. We have some young pastors here, some young leaders here, some interns here. And we have some older ones. And God says, let no one disregard your message because of your age. Be an example in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Think about Jesus. He died at age 33, considered then a youth. Yet in the three years he ministered, he impacted the world more more than Anybody ever has. Your youth does not have to be a stumbling block to God using you in great ways. When you study the Puritans, you learn something very interesting. The Puritans were actually a group of men who lived in the 1600s a lot of times we think of puritans as being people in you know america early on in america the pilgrims they were puritanical but the real puritans the elizabethan puritans lived in the 1600s in the area of england and during that time preaching became an art and studying became an art and these men were growing and growing and, and god just raised up some of the godliest men and some of the greatest theologians who have ever lived But what's interesting is God wanted them to leave a mark on our world today. And if he didn't work it outright, they would have just lived and died. And that age would have, for the most part, been lost. But what's interesting is he caused the state to impose upon the Puritans things that would defile their conscience. They told them what they had to preach and what they had to wear wear, and they just refused to do it. They were going to preach the whole counsel of God's word like the scriptures command and they weren't going to compromise. And so in that time, 2,000 ministers were ejected from their pulpits. Some of the greatest preachers who have ever lived were ejected from their pulpits. And now you have 2,000 ministers out of employment. And so the Puritans said, all right, if we can't preach, then we will write. And that is why we have so many great works from that time period. And God used their ejection to produce these works that have impacted the church ever since. And when you read the works, you discover that certain Puritans rose to the top and were distinguished in their area. Like John Owens was just the greatest theologian maybe the world has ever seen. And Thomas Watson was one of the the clearest preachers of that time And Richard Baxter was one of the most practical of all the Puritans and wrote a lot of practical works directed specifically at leaders of churches so they would know how to shepherd their flock. And one of his great works, which I would recommend any leader to read, is called The Reformed Pastor. And this is what Baxter writes concerning being an example. Take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine, and lest you lay such stumbling blocks before the blind as they be the occasion of your ruin, lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues, and be the greatest hindrances of the success of your own labors. It will much more hinder your work if you contradict yourselves and if your actions give your tongue the lie and if you build up an hour or two with your mouth, and then all the week pull down with your hands. This is a way to make men think that the word of God is but an idle tale. To make preaching seem no better than pratting. He that means as he speaks will surely do as he speaks. One proud, surly word, one lordy word, one needless contention, one covetous action may cut the throat of many a sermon and blast the fruit off of all you have been doing. So it is as we come here, we see that let no one disregard the word of God because of your age and make sure you don't let them disregard it by showing yourself an example. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is so clear. We thank you that, Father, you have called us all to be examples, not just leaders. We are all to be examples because we all have witnesses watching our lives We have family and we have friends. We have neighbors and co-workers. Father, I just pray for Calvary Bible Church that all of us would take seriously these exhortations. That we would diligently labor to be the kind of people that you would have us to be. Great lights in a dark world. That our light would so shine before men that they would see you in us. See your image stamped upon our lives. And, Father, they might give you glory and come to salvation. Father, we pray for those here who don't know you. We pray for those who might be here thinking that they aren't examples. They can't be mimicked. Their lives are full of compromise and, and Father, toleration of what you hate. Father, I pray that you would grant them repentance, help them run to Christ now. Help them to acknowledge their sin and ask for forgiveness and commit to turn from their sin and follow you. Father, may they cry out to be changed by you and your word and the Holy Spirit. And Father, we thank you that you have given us leaders. We pray that you would continue to help them become more and more examples of the flock that you have given them to shepherd. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.